Welcome to the Economic Development Matters podcast, brought to you by Edmonton Global, hosted by me, Brianna Morris, and my colleague, Sherry Baslama. Sherry and I work together at Edmonton Global, an economic development agency that represents 14 municipalities that make up the Edmonton metropolitan region. Home to 1.4 million people and generating $105 billion in GDP, our region is Canada's fifth largest economy, and we're just getting started. At Edmonton Global, our purpose is to transform and grow the economy of the Edmonton region. And we do that by attracting foreign direct investment and quality jobs. We also support our local businesses to expand internationally. On this podcast, we talk about economic development matters and why it matters. We discuss how we can best compete in the global marketplace and build a sustainable and prosperous economy to enhance the quality of life for the people in our communities. Our guest today is Chris Steele. On this episode, we're talking about using incentives to attract new investment. Chris is based in Boston and leads EBP's economic development practice. He began his career as a corporate site selector at Ernst & Young, assisting dozens of companies as they decided where in the world to locate headquarters, back offices, data centers, warehouses, or factories. We're so excited to learn from him today. Uh, Welcome, Chris. How are you? Brianna, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. So you've been a site selector. Um, Tell us a little bit about your career and what exactly is it that a site selector does? Well, sure. Thank you again for the opportunity to speak with you today. Uh, I think that you did a good job of just kind of introducing my own background. I do head up the economic development practice here at EBP in the U.S., Um, Over my career, I have done things like helped uh, Boeing with its headquarters move when it moved from Seattle to Chicago. I've helped uh, companies like Intel select new sites for chip fabrication plants uh, and even things like specialty food and things of that nature. And it's given me a really in-depth understanding of how companies make location decisions. So one of the things I did with my career over the past really about 15 years now is to help communities better understand how companies make those location decisions and also to put together good policies that will help to enhance competitive advantage. And of course, incentives are part of that overall calculus. One of the things that I've done over the past uh, couple of years, for example, is I've worked with jurisdictions as they have tried to evaluate the effectiveness of their own incentive programs. That included five years of working with the state of Maine here in the States as they were trying to figure out how their goodness, it was like 60 some odd different incentive programs were actually meeting the goals. Uh, We worked with the government of Finland as they were trying to determine how to update their incentive policies to be more on target to the kinds of things that they were doing. And I've also worked with jurisdictions actually in the Edmonton metropolitan region. Thanks, Chris. That's great. Um, I'm just going to jump in here and ask you, what exactly counts as an incentive? Can you give some examples? Sure. An incentive is anything that helps to, you know, really overcome any sort of a barrier that a jurisdiction has in terms of bringing any sort of investment in. It is meant to be a differentiator uh, from one jurisdiction to another, aside from the other more everyday meat and potatoes kind of things that companies will make location decisions on. You know, of course, as a uh, as a company is making a location decision, it is much more focused on things like, you know, particularly nowadays, is the labor force, is the workforce in place that I require to do the things that I need to do. 
are the supply chains there and robust enough to be able to address the things that I need? Do I have a general regulatory and tax environment that is conducive to the kinds of business that I want to do? Are there other businesses in that jurisdiction that I can work with to innovate and partner? And all of those things are really much more than meat and potatoes. But as a company goes through a site location decision and as it continues to narrow the list of jurisdictions it is looking at, that's when incentives start to have a role in some of the conversations. It's one way of, of you know, particularly municipalities and provinces and states and even in some cases national governments of trying to say, you know, we're already strong in this area, but if you come here, we'd like to work with you and have you be part of our environment, of our ecosystem, and we're willing to have a mutual investment in you. So some people have been critical of incentives and maybe call them corporate welfare. What would you say to people who say that? Uh, I would say they're not necessarily wrong. Um, any sort of an incentive policy, I, I've used this metaphor many, many times. Uh, an incentive is very similar to a power tool. And in the right hands, it can be used to to craft something that is a very enduring and mutually beneficial uh, relationship between the public sector and the private sector. It can certainly benefit the private sector in terms of lowering taxes or lowering costs, but it can also form a foundation for further growth in certain sectors. However, like a power tool, you don't want to put it in the hands of somebody that's not trained or that is trying to use it for a purpose that it wasn't designed for. That's very interesting. Okay, can you give us an example of an incentive in the wrong hands or, or used inappropriately? Very often, this ends up being a, uh, a situation where a, um, a, a politician or an administrator will want to be seen doing something really important and powerful. And they will try and go for the, uh, the long ball. They'll try and you know, shoot straight across the ice or they'll try and you know, go for the fences on the first try. Not understanding that point that I was just making about just general economic fundamentals of what makes a region work well. So one example that uh, that is very, very common that we pull up pretty frequently is, you know, not that far from where I'm sitting here, the state of Rhode Island, uh, a couple of years ago was desperate to try and get into the software industry, uh, particularly on the gaming side. And they worked with an individual by the name of Kurt Schilling. And you may recognize that name from a certain well, a certain piece of uh, of bloody hosiery from a uh, from a World Series about uh, almost twenty years ago now. Uh, his game studio called uh, Thirty Eight uh, Thirty Eight Studios was looking to grow and expand. And instead of going in Massachusetts, he went to the state of Rhode Island, where they offered him something on the order of a seventy five million dollar loan ga uh, guarantee. Uh Yikes. And, you know, obviously he went back to the state of Massachusetts and said, hey, listen, here's what Rhode Island's doing for me. Massachusetts said, you know, bless your heart and then move them on to Rhode Island. And uh, Rhode Island was then uh, there thinking that they had won a major new game and software studio. However, the, uh, the company was not actually built on very sound foundations. And since the state had put in there some clauses where it was guaranteeing the, uh, the loan amount, they were stuck on, on, the, uh, on the hook for an estimated $112 million in principal and accrued interest. 
this is one of the dangers about trying to go for that one big deal as opposed to having a well-balanced policy that first of all spreads risk and also capitalizes on your known competitive strengths. That's an incredible story and I, I can't imagine that the uh, elected officials weren't on the hook for some pretty uh, you know reputational damage after making those decisions. Um, and Everybody loves these bad stories, but I want to give you the chance maybe to talk about an incentive that you've seen that's been done really right, that hit, kind of checked off all the boxes as far as you're concerned. Well, it's interesting. Even the good ones have, uh, you know, certainly are open to, to real criticism. And I think that that's a healthy part of the dialogue. But some of the policies that I have seen that work really, really well are ones where they, for example, will fund a key piece of infrastructure. That means that the jurisdiction is stronger, even if that individual deal fails. So things like roadways, things like utilities, things like telecom. The other things that I think work really well are programs that, as I said before, spread risk. So it's not one large award that's going to one company that is trying to go ahead, I say again, swing for the fences and try and get everything, but is actually starting to try and build a little bit of a base. Um, even to the point of, for example, normally I advocate programs that are that are more performance based. Once a company achieves a certain thing, then you get a credit against whatever. So there's some really built in checks and balances. Sometimes that's just not possible. So I mentioned before we had worked with the government of Finland. They were really trying to get their own IT and uh, you know, a lot of the, uh, the technology innovation space going. And they had tax credits available. The problem that they had was, of course, some of these early stage technology companies don't have tax liabilities against which you can place a, a, a credit. So I've seen a couple of jurisdictions uh, look at that in a very, very um, innovative way. The government of Finland actually put together some small forgivable grants to try and address that at the same funding level that they were putting for the tax credits. So again, they were put money, putting money at risk, but small amounts given the size of the companies involved. The state of New Jersey took a slightly different uh, approach to it. Particularly on the life sciences side, about 20 years ago, they were trying to once again get uh, the life sciences, particularly early stage in. Again, these companies don't have tax liabilities to apply the credits to. So they created a marketplace where the credits themselves could be sold to other New Jersey based businesses against tax liabilities that they had. So it actually took the same budget line item and allowed it to both fund a need and then at a discounted level to then be used as a tax credit for another company in the state of New Jersey to continue to strengthen that relationship. It's really not a one size fits all sort of area, is it, Chris? It absolutely is not. And it really does require two things. One is understanding your competitive advantage as it is there now. In other words, understanding the things that got you in the conversation first as a jurisdiction. What are those key pieces of workforce, of economic ecosystems, of logistics that make it so that you're part of the competitive landscape in the first place? And then to be able to unpack what the needs of that kind of business is, where it is in its business cycle, to be able to create a mutually beneficial relationship. Absolutely. So in Alberta, some of the main incentives um, we're seeing right now would be like the Alberta Jobs Now program, um, which is uh, funding training and new positions. Um, and we also have a lower corporate tax rate here. Mm -hmm. uh, and. and what advice do you have for Alberta? Is there some area where maybe we're sort of missing the boat, um, some 
some sort of incentive maybe that we should be looking at over here? So this is going to get us in that conversation of the how important are incentives. And I'm going to have to answer that. It depends on who you ask. So if you actually speak to the corporate executives in, in most cases who are going to be responsible for operating the facility after the after the fact, they are more likely, not, not universally, but more likely to downplay the, the impact of incentives on the overall decision. They will they will want to know that they are that they are wanted and they will want to know that they, that the government is looking to be an active partner, but it will be lower on that overall priority level. The caution I will put here is to understand what kinds of consultants you may be working with. And it's the same kind of caution I will put with regards to any sort of a service provider to just understand their role and understand, of course, how they are being compensated for the services they provide. So for many advisors, myself included, it's time and expense and or you know just a set fee for a, a particular service that's provided. Um, others will operate a little bit more like a real estate broker where they are taking a percentage of the deal that is negotiated. So this is the case in terms of some who are doing, for example, site location work who will be paid in a similar way. They'll be, they'll be making a commission on the incentive they negotiate. And as a result, you might find that the incentives may be a little bit higher in terms of importance in that conversation. Now, if I can, let me let me take you back to the question that you actually asked, which is the you know the overall you know programs that might be helpful in in an Alberta context. As you've already pointed out, the province of Alberta has lowered its taxes considerably. So, if you look at the overall cost to operate, it's already highly competitive. The other thing about reducing your tax rate is that you've got less to incentivize. So it means that you have to be a little bit more creative. Now, I do, I, I, I do like what has been going on with the uh, with the jobs programs. I think that any program that enhances skill levels within a jurisdiction is one of that kind of program that makes it so the jurisdiction is stronger regardless of what happens. You know, worst case is that you've trained a bunch of people, you've had them selected and the company fails, but you still have that trained group of people. And that becomes then a marketing advantage for the jurisdiction going forward for the next project. Um, I also think that what the province and, for example, the uh, the Heartland Association, the Alberta's Industrial Heartland Association, have done by marrying the APIP program, the Alberta's Petroleum Investment Program, I'm sorry, Incentive Program, along with the Heartland Incentive Program, is very similar to something that you might see, for example, in the United States, where you've got two levels of government working collaboratively to have programs that complement each other. Thanks, Chris. Um that's, we're almost at to the end of our time together today, so I just wanted to give you an opportunity. Is there anything that we haven't talked about yet that you want to share with our listeners or kind of a key takeaway that you think they should leave this uh, after listening to this podcast? Well, as I think that you've probably heard even just from these few moments, this is a topic that I get very excited about and that I've gotten uh, a lot of knowledge in over the years. So, you know, just to have as one takeaway, uh, I would say the more that you can understand your own competitive context and the more that you can understand both the needs of the business that you are trying to attract in and the possible risks that might come along with that, the better informed you are likely to be as you're putting together and also applying any sort of an incentive program. I would also say the more that you can actually make it so that it is performance-based, transparent, 
predictable. These are all of the, you know, the, the, the best practices and the incentive side of things. This has been uh, very insightful. And yes, you're very passionate about this, Chris. Uh, thank you so much. Lots for us to think about here in the Edmonton region. Um, so how can people get a hold of you if they want to take advantage of your, your passion and your knowledge in this field? Well, you know, the funny thing is, is that in pre-COVID times, you probably could have run into me in the street and, uh, you know, somewhere in either you know, Edmonton or Calgary. Um, but during these times, uh, probably the best way to reach me is still by email, which is chris.steele, S-T-E-L-E, at ebp-us.com or even on my phone, 617-678-9800. Thank you so much again for your time today, Chris. We really appreciate it and, and hopefully we'll speak again soon. Yeah, thanks, it's Chris. It's absolutely my pleasure. That's a wrap for today. Thank you for tuning in to the Economic Development Matters podcast, brought to you by Edmonton Global. For more information about Edmonton Global or to get in touch, visit our website at edmontonglobal.ca. Follow us on social media, on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on your favorite podcast platform so you'll be among the first to know when a new episode drops. We hope you learned something new today about economic development matters and why it matters. Until next time, we're your hosts, Sherry and Brianna, signing off. <laughs>